0: to turn in your, your copy of God's Word. Uh, our reading this morning will be out of Luke chapter 17. We're going to back up and begin in verse 5, which is a passage we've already studied, but we're going to press on and read all the way through verse 19. Luke chapter 17, beginning verse 5 through verse 19. Now we're reading, as is our custom, out of the New King James Version. God's Word says, And the apostles said to the Lord, Increase our faith. So the Lord said, If you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and sit down to eat. But will he not rather say to him, Prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterward you will eat and drink. Doesn't he, does he thank the servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. So likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem, that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers, who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, go. Go. Show yourselves to the priests. And so it was that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice, glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet and giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, Were there not ten Cleansed? But where are the nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And He said to him, Arise, go your way. Your faith has made you well. Well, this morning's text is uh, pretty brief, really. It has a... Singular message. We're going to try to develop some of the nuances of that singular message and connect it really to what has just proceeded in our text. Uh, we've been studying through Luke, chapter, Luke as a book and now in chapter 17. These last two weeks we've seen Christ's development of a uh, what the Christian life ought to be like. And he's done this not by giving us instruction, per se, but by giving us warnings. By telling us that the Christian life is going to be avoiding offenses. Not of hurting people's feelings, but avoiding uh, anything that would detract from the gospel of Jesus Christ. That would prohibit someone from entering into faith in Christ. um, Whether it be through our hypocritical uh, actions, behaviors, attitudes, words, um, whatever it is. That we would avoid that. That we would be careful particularly amongst with our children and uh, making sure that they um, not only have a grasp of the facts of faith, of the information of the gospel, but they might see it in our lives. That that is the true evidentiary that they need to have before them. Is that this is something real and uh, that is life-changing, life-impacting. And so we're given a warning that we watch out. We also are told about our interrelationships. Not only with children and with the idea of not leading anyone into a state of not wanting to follow Christ, but that we are further called by God to be forgiving in the nature of our relationships one with another. Now when we are offended by not offended when we are sinned against by others that we are ready to extend tenderness to them when they come confessing or asking for forgiveness, and that we are very patient with those that sin against us. But yet we are diligent to care for ourselves, even severe with ourselves to make sure we do not sin against others. We then saw the necessity of faith to live that kind of life. This life doesn't well up from within us. It is not something we manufacture in us, the disciples kind of had that idea. Well, there's something we need more than what we have now to enable us to live that kind of a life, Jesus. And Jesus says, no, you don't grasp it. And there's nothing that you have to generate inside of you. And in fact, uh, in the heart of man, there is nothing of value to be generated that can bring forth this kind of living. Uh, all men we talked about have faith. You believe in something this morning, uh, all, all men do. All mankind believes in something. Uh, and so that idea of faith, of trusting in, in, in something, uh, is inherently there by the power of God that, that placed it in us um, at creation and has been passed down from generation to generation. Uh, we have that ability to trust. It can be warped. It can be damaged. But all of us have the capacity of trusting uh, most people I've encountered usually trust themselves, number one. And so we talk about how do we, where does the power come from? The power doesn't come from within us. There's nothing within us that needs to be generated. Christ says it's not that you need more faith. All you need is the faith of a mustard seed. You need this tiny faith. And you can do what I ask. It's not about whether or not you have faith. The question is, upon whom do you have that faith? Are you trusting in things that are temporary? He talked about that in chapter 16, the tempor- uh, that, that we, in the parable of the unjust steward, who understood that once he faced his things that he managed as temporary, it changed his attitude. And once we begin to understand that if we're trusting in things that are temporary, that are only of this earth, that are, that are not going to really uh, extend beyond that, now, our faith is weak because the object of that faith is weak. If we trust in ourselves, we know our inherent limitations, though many of us don't want to acknowledge them. We really do know they're there. It's always good when we're reminded of those, by the way. Uh, when we trust in an economy, when we trust in this rock that I painted a picture on, and I'm going to pray to it now, um, these kinds of things, we know inherently they do not have capacity to help us, yet we trust in them. When Ratat Kumar this morning talked about the idolatry, the Baal worship that had come into Israel at the time of Jeremiah and uh, that they were uh, then boasting in their wisdom, in their strength, in their riches, um, that's very real to him. He confronts that all the time. Uh, there are a billion, there's over a billion gods in India. They're everywhere. And, uh, And you can make your own. Just, like I said, take a rock and paint something on it. Set it in a little thing and start praying to it. Oh, the foolishness of placing faith in such a thing. Or in such a one. What makes a Christian life, what gives us the capacity to live it, is not how great our faith is. If anything, I think the faith of true Christians is pretty puny. I'm going to explain that a little bit. I didn't get to do that last week. We really have pretty small faith. We have evidence for God that He has been at work and continues to be at work. We have we have an extensive writings that have been given over thousands of years by dozens of different writers in different languages that all agree with itself. We have um, uh, eyewitness accounts. We have archaeological evidence up the wazoo for what is described here in God's Word, we have all of this. We have a very sensible faith. And and because of that, it doesn't require a lot to believe it. It really doesn't. This is what Christ says. It takes the faith of a mustard seed. It takes the faith of a child to believe the Gospel. Because when you trust in the God of the universe, who is active agent amongst us and we see as truth and we and we can confirm it and we can uh, uh prove it over and over again um, it doesn't take a lot of as much faith does it to believe something that's provable now there's some aspects of our faith that are difficult and that may not be easily proven yes but we have a reasonable faith we have a provable faith in much in many respects um uh I got to tell you, Mormons have more faith than I do. I mean, they have a book that describes an entire civilization here on this land, out there in Missouri and places, um, that we have zero archaeological evidence for, zero. But they believe it. That's incredible. I couldn't believe in something like that. I love the fact that I can go to Israel, I can go to Turkey, I can go to Greece, I can go to Egypt, I can go to these places and I can look up in my Bible and it says this is such and such a place and I can go up and see a rock with that guy's name carved in that rock in Caesarea by the sea, Pilate. You can go to those places, and the more they dig, the more they find, and the more they find, the more they say, "Oh, the Bible knows exactly what it 's talking about." so you see, when we talk about our faith, our faith doesn 't need to be large, and God knows that, and so he gives us something true to believe in it 's the people that believe in stories and fairy tales and and uh, uh, as I said, idols and rocks that they fashion with their own hands. They don't speak. They don't talk. They don't move. They don't do anything. And and they believe in them. So Christ is asking you to generate something within you. He's saying, trust me. Take the little faith you need. Place it in the right place. And I will produce something in you. I will deliver you. And that power of God then comes upon us. Not because of our great faith, but because of the one in whom we place it. In the words of Retna Kumar this morning we don't boast in our faith, do we? We don't boast in myself. I don't boast in my wisdom. You know, I, I trust in the, right per, in the right thing, I have the right belief system, I am, I have, and so I can boast in myself. No, we boast in the Lord the fact is that it doesn't take a lot of faith to believe that. It takes a lot more faith to believe that you came from a monkey, frankly. Where's the evidence? Where are the intermediate forms that are superior to their subforms and yet aren't here? So uh, evolutionists have a much greater degree of faith than I do. You see, it's not great faith that it takes. It takes a great God to perform works in us. And this is the focus of Christ. Once we understand that, and we understand that now we have a great God that has done great work in us that we could not possibly have generated within ourselves, now we can serve Him. And we serve Him faithfully, and we serve Him out of a certain spirit. And it's that spirit, and this is the reason I believe Luke put this small little account uh, tucked in here he's getting ready to go into some extensive theology jesus is but this little account is being tucked in here we ended last week with this phrase when we have done all those things which you are commanded when you not not if you did them all but when you've done them all god's expectation is you are going to obey his word without excuse without delay and without complaint When you've done it all, your reaction is, here's what I'm supposed to say, you, we are unprofitable servants, we have done what was our duty to do, and nothing more. Well, that comes out of some spirit that is not natural in man, is that, that we want to study this morning. Before we do so, let's go, Lord, in prayer real quick. Lord God, we do thank you for your word this morning. We pray that as we study it, that your spirit might take control this time, that you might, uh, Guard this time from error, from the philosophies of men, from my ideas, that it might be truly uh, your word spoken here with power with, uh, and to your glory. Lord, we do uh, pray that we might be receptive to this message as well, willing to bring it into our very lives, to humble ourselves before you, and recognize What you call us to is not natural for man any longer in sin. So we ask for your supernatural working in us today. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, it just so happens that Jesus is encountered by ten lepers. From a distance, was their expectation was that they were not allowed to come into any of the towns or villages. They often had camps where they were kept, And they were not to approach anyone near because leprosy is a very communicable disease. And they understood the necessity of isolating those people. They were usually cared for by family members who would bring them food and such and drop them off. And uh, and so these camps were about. It wasn't uncommon for lepers to travel in groups like this. So you might say, well, ten lepers all in one place. Uh, Christ's itinerary has probably taken him nearby a leprosy camp, and these ten have come out. And they've come out, and knowing that if they get too close, that they're going to be driven away, they call from a distance. And I love the fact that they, they have access to God, even from this distant place. They stand afar off, it says in verse 12, they lift up their voices, and they have a powerful testimony of faith. Remember we talked about how much faith does it take? You don't have to come up close and rub up against God to be able to trust in Him. They're from a distance. They've heard of this Jesus, I'm sure. They've never been near enough to Him. I'm convinced. Maybe even here is teaching. What they know about Jesus Christ, they have known second hand at best. They have heard the testimony they have heard the accounts of what he has done here and there and the work that he has done. They, they have heard perhaps others uh, whispering or, or calling out or maybe they've even seen some writing done about what he's teaching. And they've come forward now. They've gotten as close as they dare. Because they're the cast outs of society. We understand the medical need for that, that quarantine. But there was a certain harshness that was there towards them as well. Many in Israel felt that if you were a leper it's because God's judging you for something. So they came up and they were uh, as near as they could to this one they'd heard about. Remember, they were—they I don't know if they could have ever been near enough to Christ to hear Him teach in the past. Ever. Where He went, there was great crowds. They would not have been allowed in those crowds. Everything they knew was hearsay. Everything they knew about this man, Jesus, they heard from someone else. But it was enough. Isn't that wonderful? Why is that wonderful for us? Because the fact is, everything we know of Jesus Christ, we've heard from someone else. We've heard it from men like Luke, men like John, men like Peter, men like Matthew and Mark and... and, uh, These individuals that have written these accounts, we are getting it through their writings. We haven't firsthand gone and seen it, but we've heard of him. We've heard from the eyewitnesses. And we know that those eyewitnesses are reliable. Why? Because they were witnesses to it to their death. They weren't making a lot of money off of this. They weren't. Doing this for a lot of fame. They were hunted men. Yet they kept to it. This is what we saw. This is what we heard. And they kept preaching that message even as they were imprisoned, even as they were beaten, even as they were themselves sometimes crucified or beheaded, slaughtered. This is our testimony. The testimony is true, John says the last of the living apostles. We heard it ourselves. And now we want to communicate to you and you say, well, is that enough? Yes. And the lepers tell us it's enough. They never heard Christ teach. They certainly weren't close enough. And so everything they've heard is is someone else's testimony. And so they come as close to Christ as they can and they cry out, oh, Lord, have mercy on us. Jesus' master. Lord, Master, have mercy upon us. A declaration of abject need. A true statement of humility. I, there's nothing I can do for myself. Lord, all we need is Your mercy. You're going to have to give us what we don't deserve. You're going to have to keep from us what we do deserve. They didn't ask for grace. I, I, I said grace, but I wanted to use mercy. Why? Because in their minds, they were under God's judgment. This was commonly taught and held position the reason that i'm a leper because i must have been wicked and god's judging me therefore i'm going to ask jesus for mercy mercy is god not giving me the punishment i deserve so their minds they deserve punishment and they're asking jesus to take it from them And we join them. We're in the same condition. Before Christ, we, too deserve punishment. Our sin is an affront to God, and we deserve death. Death is the result is the result of sin. and we deserve that death. We deserve eternal death that comes after that, um, for we have disobeyed God and, and have passed that down generationally since Adam. And so we are under that curse so like these, we've heard of Jesus secondhand at best. But that's enough. If we're willing to humble ourselves and recognize I am under a curse, I myself am under the punishment of God and, and I need His mercy. I need Him to, to withhold that, that I deserve. Very simple phrase a phrase of humility and a phrase of faith. Not a lot of theology here doesn't look like. In fact, it sounds like something that a child could say, doesn't it? Lord, have mercy on me. I need your help. I can't help myself. And indeed, they could not. No one on earth could help them. Jesus sees them (coughs) gives them an instruction the instruction jesus gives them in your mind should be comparable to the instructions he gave the apostles and the disciples about how you should be living your christian life that their response was lord increase our faith his statement is go go show yourselves to the priests Um, if someone was healed or was cleansed of leprosy which has happened in the past." Um, miraculously as well as other ways, but miraculously particularly we think of um of Moses' sister, Miriam, was given leprosy and as a judgment of God. So there's historical precedence here for the beliefs of Israel. Uh, and so if you were thought to be healed of leprosy, your instruction out of the law was you're supposed to go to a priest who would then give you a full examination. Very carefully, who would then offer a sacrifice, cleanse you, and declare you clean. And then you could re-enter society. Jesus Christ doesn't promise to heal them, does he? He doesn't say, here's all the list of things I'm going to do for you. He doesn't say, I want you to jump up and down. You know, for Naaman, when he was cleansed of leprosy, he was told, just go down into the water in the Jordan River seven times. You'll be cleansed by the prophet, told him to do that. And, um, but that, but the water didn't cleanse him. We know that. The reason he was told to do that was, Naaman, let's see if you're humble enough to do a silly thing like go washing a river seven times in front of your men. And he was cleansed. But Jesus Christ here just says, go and show yourself to the priest. For you see this simple, small faith declaration. Lord, I've heard you can deliver. I, I'm not close enough to you to, to be able to understand it all, or I've never not really heard a lot of your teaching, but if you can deliver, I've got a thing to be delivered from my sin. Please have mercy on me. And Christ's response is done. Go show yourself to the priest. Now you have to think about Now he's just pressed their faith a little bit, hasn't he? You see, the the declaration, Lord, have mercy on us. We heard you can heal. And so now we're going to ask for your mercy and take this off of us. Um, Well, you might say it would help a lot if he just walked over, touched them, and says, be healed. And they went, and all the leprosy was gone. You know, that would make my faith easy. But he's going to stretch their faith just a little bit. He's not going to really heal them on the spot. He says, just go and show yourself to the priest. On their way, <laughs> and by the way, they had to do—they had to do that. They had to go on their way, and this is the aspect that Christ is trying to to speak to us. If we have salvific faith, it doesn't begin and end at this prayer, "Lord, forgive me." And yet, that is many people's attitude. When did I get saved? I got saved when I was 12 years old, and I asked Jesus Christ to come into my life, and. Uh, uh, Cleansing my sin, and that happened at 12 years old, and then I was baptized uh, the following Easter. That's not when I got saved. That's when my salvation began. Salvation goes on. And that's what Christ is trying to communicate. That our faith is built by obeying His commands, and His commands are going to be stretching. And for this command to occur is going to stretch these men. You've called on my mercy i've given turned my attention to you i've said go show yourself to the priest you know what that means what that means is you're going to go and see if you can be found to be cleansed and be brought back into society but they still had to look at themselves well, look at their missing fingers perhaps and go okay he wants us to start walking And they actually had to start walking towards the priest. You just wonder, you know, after 10, 12 steps, um, anything, anything growing back on you? No? Any, any, any parts fall off? No? Uh, well, should we keep going? Well, he said go. Does it take a lot of faith just to go? It takes a little bit more. The other one was standing afar off, saying, hey, Lord, help us. We want instant gratification just like most Christians I've met, most Americans, particularly in this society. Instant gratification, please. I want to accept Jesus Christ today and I want to know as much as uh, the preacher by tomorrow. I want to know as much as the guy who's been a believer for 40 years. I want to be where he's at tomorrow. We want instantly. And it just doesn't work that way. This, and so Christ says, Go. And they have to, by faith, walk a road. I want to share with you where that road is going to take them. It's going to take them right into the place they're not allowed to go. They've got to go into town. They've got to go into Jerusalem. They've got to go up onto the Temple Mount. They've got to go show themselves to the priest. If there is anything left of their leprosy visible by the time they enter the gates they'll be stoned. They'll be driven away by the people. Now you begin to understand the concept of faith Christ has here. If you really believe, you're going to go do what I tell you to do. You're going to be my servant. You're going to call me master, then obey my commands. This, this, act, this statement of faith back here, Lord have mercy on us, needs to be followed up by an activity of faith. James says faith without works is dead. Hebrews tells us that by faith in the, the hall of faith there in Hebrews 11, all these men by faith they did. By faith they did this. It wasn't their faith that's being extolled, but rather the one in whom they trusted. They trusted in Christ. And so they did. Now, they went by faith and, uh, and it says as they went, they were cleansed. Isn't that great? As they went, they were cleansed. Brethren, as you obey God, your faith will increase. As you obey Him, it will get easier. As you obey Him, step by step, obeying God, you will experience His blessings. You will. Did I say your life will be easier? No, but you'll experience His deliverance. You'll grow in your understanding and knowledge of Him. You'll begin to bring glory to God, which we're going to talk about here in a minute. As they went, they were cleansed. God waits upon obedient faith. This is what He asks of. Not declarative faith, but obedient faith. A faith that steps away and says, Lord, have mercy on us. It's very different in nature than a faith that says, I'm going to go and obey. The obedient faith is is always going to have the declarative faith. But the declarative faith may not always have the obedient faith. So when I say that you have to have the obedient kind of faith, it's a faith that says, I'm going to make the declaration, I'm going to follow through on that declaration with obeying God. So it's not that you need one or the other, you need both. And if you have obedient faith, I guarantee you've already had declarative faith. cannot get there. It's a stepping stone to the other. But if you are here today and you have a declarative faith that you've made this great profession, but you've never been obedient to God's Word in some of these areas, I would challenge your faith. If these ten lepers had not started on their way to the priest, they would not have been cleansed. They were cleansed on the way. As they went. Only we would have an understanding of our faith that it needs to be as I go kind of faith. And not, Lord, if you'll just cleanse me right where I'll stand, then I can serve you. No. As I go, I'll be cleansed. As we obey, He will work. We can stand on this side of the great working of God and have every excuse not to take those first steps of obedience. It's too scary. Bad things could happen. It might not work out for me. That's not obedient faith. Obedient faith obeys without delay, without excuse, and without complaint. It just goes. It's expectant. It's, it's gonna say, okay, he says, do this, I'm gonna do it. It's hard, but he says to do it, and he will be with me as I do it. Well, now we get to a third level of faith, and this is where we ended last week's message. The third level of faith brings us back to glorify God, and this is, this is great. Now, i got to tell you this. I did not tell Rathal Kumar that I was going to do this verse. Okay? So his message, my message, two different continents. Never compared notes. But you're going to get a double dose of this. Who's going to get glory? Who's going to get the glory in your life? You see, a declarative faith in God begins the delivering process. Now you have the... Uh, god 's attention, God is going to give you some instructions and you're going to say, okay, do you really believe me? Then you go now we have a challenge i 'm going to go from making this declaration of humility and of, of trust in him, and now we 're going to have to put it into practice and in obedience, and we have the calling of God for us to give an obedient faith and uh, we are out there we 're on our way, and now we are there and we 've seen God work in our past we 've seen him. Uh, Provide and deliver and and strengthen and supply all along the way. And as we have walked, He is cleansed. But we're not finished in our maturing of our faith. He sent ten lepers to the priest. They all went. Excellent. We're we're excited. All were cleansed. It says, it describes them that they, they, and so it was that they were cleansed. And one of them, verse 15, when he saw that he was healed, returned, and with a loud voice glorified God, fell down on his face and his feet, giving him thanks. We're going to stop right there. I know it's in the middle of a verse, but that's okay. One out of ten made that final step. Which tells me that we're dealing with a small minority. Which, for me as the pastor this morning, tells me that I'm probably about ready to step on some of your toes. Only one out of ten in this case made it to the most mature level of faith that I believe is exemplified or I'm sorry, exemplifying and uh, illustrating verses 8, 9, and 10 of this same chapter. You see, we're sure, declarative faith, that, that's a good start. Okay, I've got some obedient faith. I'm not way down the road on obedient faith, but I'm, I'm out there. I'm working in the field. I'm, I'm trying to obey God in some areas of my life. Um, and, and I've seen Him work a little bit. And, and prob, I, I pray that most of you are in that category. I, I do. But if you're not, and you're just back there with declarative faith and you don't have any evidence in your life, you need to work on it. You need to make a decision in your life whether that's a real thing or not. But we have this obedient faith and now it starts to break down. Because of the nature of man, as we obey God, we begin, strangely enough, transforming what He's doing in our life to what we're doing in our life. We start taking credit for what really God did. This shows itself in in several ways. It shows itself by what Ratna Kumar talked about in Sunday school this morning, and that is we begin boasting in ourselves, in our wisdom, in our riches, in our might. We begin to talk about as though it's something that that we generated, something that we created, something that we, uh, uh, by our sheer intelligence or ability or or insight, were able to accomplish. We fail to give glory to God. Certainly, that is one thing that keeps us from coming to this fully matured faith. But there's another aspect there that shows that we haven't gotten to that faith, and that's when we continue to need to be stroked in order to obey. That is, I'm obeying, but I don't feel very appreciated. we start the pout process. The spiritual pouting. The spiritual pouting is not a, a presentation of verses 8, 9, and 10, is it? When I've done everything, I'm out in the field, I come home, is the master going to say, Oh, you did a good job here, sit down, let me take off your boots and massage your feet. Let me put some lotion on your hands and let me anoint your head with oil. Is that going to happen, servants? No. But yet, that's exactly what we think should happen. Why? Because we're more like the nine than the one. We haven't come to that mature faith to say, oh, you know, I'm trying to think what's in the mind of these nine that didn't come back. You know, uh, we walked really well on the way to the priest. What did they have to the glory in? You might say, well, that's stupid. They're not going to sit there and applaud themselves for walking to the priest, aren't they? It's no different. Their walking to the priest is not any harder than you doing what God tells you to do. You see, when we say, it would be a lot easier to obey God if I just had some, you know, people kind appreciate me. And what happens when they don't? Where are you? I'll tell you where you are. You're not going to be in church. Or you're going to be a grump in church, which is even worse. I'd rather you not be here than be a grump here. Did I say that? We're going to uh, uh, have all this attitude along with our thing, and oh, no one appreciates it, boo-hoo, uh, poor me. And what's the conclusion of the matter? You're going to fail to give glory to God. You're going to be among the nine who do not give glory to God for His working in your life because you're sure that you had most of the work on your side, that you did most of it. You expect your master to pull out and to jump out of his lazy chair, throw you in there and soak your feet and massage your hands. Or you're going to stop obeying you're not going to give glory to God? Oh, that we would have that one out of ten with a fully mature faith who will say, I'm an unprofitable servant. Look at this guy. Tell me he doesn't sound like a guy who understands who he is. Who has a true, abject humility. He comes down, it says he returned. He saw he's healed. Oh, baby! Woohoo! Now he's a Samaritan. Samaritans didn't have to actually go to the priest. Some did, but he might have. But he saw he was healed. We're not even sure he made it to the priest, but uh he turned (laughs) he got back to Jesus Christ. And look at it. He was a loud voice, glorify God. Nothing was going to hold him back from giving praise to God for God's work in his life. And then he goes a step further. He comes in there in verse sixteen. He falls down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. He's not giving him a high five. He's not hugging him. He is on his face before the Savior. Worshiping not at his head, not his heart, at his feet. This is where I belong. The action of this one leper, former leper, is identical to what we've just been described by Jesus' story Of a true servant. I am an unprofitable servant. And I've only done the minimum. All I did was walk over there. All I did was do what he said. I've done nothing. And so anything that happens as a result of me expending myself For Jesus Christ gets no credit to me. All the credit goes to God. And we say, praise God. And we fall down on our faces and say, I am a profitable servant. No matter if I worked 80 hours this week for you, Lord, I've not done enough. And anything that happens isn't to my credit. It's fully to yours because it's your work. You strengthen me for it. You supplied for it. You you healed. You you cleansed. You you've worked. And he comes and he puts himself and he in a loud voice glorifies God and he's giving thanks. And I would contend that the fully mature faith becomes so out of an understanding of who we have been and out of this spirit of true thanksgiving. When we lose track of what and how much we have to be thankful for to God, we begin to glorify ourselves instead of Him. And we begin to backtrack ourselves. And our obedient faith becomes a little less obedient, doesn't it? This is what the Galatians were warned of. You know, you started out so well. What happened? You started out good. What happened? Then you want to go back to the way things were. They were bewitched. And we have bewitched ourselves. When we become unthankful, we forget to remind ourselves I don't deserve any of this. And so any expenditure on my part is insignificant. It's not worth mentioning, folks. I don't expect applause. I don't expect people to thank me. I don't, in fact, I don't even really want it because the Bible says that's going to kind of affect my eternal reward. And so, uh, what, my part is insignificant. I'm down here at Jesus' feet. I'm not to be seen. I'm not to be focused upon. All the focus in my life needs to be generated to Jesus Christ and the Spirit that brings that kind of faith in me, is thanksgiving. When we are truly thankful to God, we will have no problem coming to Him and saying, I've done everything you've asked today. I know it wasn't enough. I'm just an unprofitable servant. It's just my minimum requirements. You see... You can say those words honestly because you're truly thankful for your Master. For what He's done for you. If you're not truly thankful for Him, you're not going to say those words. You're not going to come back and thank Him and fall at His feet. You're going to have some bitterness in your heart. You're going to have uh, some begrudging. You're going to feel like, I got slighted. I got passed over. I got ignored. I... I put all this energy and effort into it. I have faithfully been doing this for all these years. And yeah, I've heard those very words. And the problem with all those words is the I at the beginning of all those sentences. Your part in the work of God is minimal. Minimal. In fact, insignificant. It is what God's doing in this church that matters. And if God isn't doing anything in this church, it's because we have a declarative faith and we've never moved into the realm of obedient faith to say, I'm going to do what he says I'm going to do. Lord willing, we're an obedient church, and if God's gonna work in our midst, then we're gonna stay obedient no matter what the adversity around us, no matter whether we get, and and with true thanksgiving that, of what God is doing here and the opportunities that are afforded us, we're gonna continue to faithfully obey Him without any recompense, without anybody giving us anything, with no applause, no awards, No slaps on the back. Not even a thank you is necessary. Because we're just doing our job. For our master. What gives us that? Thanksgiving. I recognize I have a debt. That I'll never be able to repay. And so I cannot possibly do too much. For my savior when I have that kind of thanksgiving or what God's done for me, I can work and work and work and work and work and never grow weary. Because it's not me that's providing the means. The means is the Holy Spirit within us. I'm just providing a method. Use me, Lord. I'll be your tool. I'll be your brush, I'll be your instrument. Work with me, paint with me, play do whatever do, make you, do whatever you need to do with me, Lord. I'm yours. Look what you've done for me. I could never repay it. And it's the spirit of thanksgiving that transforms our faith into its most mature place where we Come back and say, thank you, Lord. The disciples exemplified this for us. Faithfully serving God, seeing thousands getting saved, ministering day, every day, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they met and ministered one to another. And in the end, what did they get for it? They didn't get any applause. They didn't get any recognition. They don't have a plaque on their wall. They got beat up. That's what they got. They got arrested. They got 39 lashes, is what we assume, and thrown out. What was their attitude? They glorified God that they were counted worthy of suffering for His name's sake. You see, obedient faith that brings glory to you Is of very little value. This is the kind of faith Jeremiah preached against there in Jeremiah chapter 9 this morning. That that's doesn't please the Lord. It is when we come to Him and glorify His name, as we're obeying, that we come to a full mature faith that says, out of the thanksgiving for what you have done for me and what you have uh, trusted into my care and and what you've delivered me from already. How can I not come back and give you thanks? And there is one aspect of this that we don't want to miss and that is this guy is a Samaritan. At that point, you're supposed to go, If you're a bunch of Jewish people, that's what you do. A Samaritan. He's a half-breed half Jew, half Gentile, which is a big time no-no. Nine Jewish lepers did not come back. One Samaritan leper came back. And Christ is dismayed, isn't He? His statement is, there were ten cleansed only. Where are the nine? Where are the nine who grew up With the privilege of knowing my truth, who heard it as children, where are they? The one who were taught God's word, who maybe went through all of the, the instruction time in the, in the synagogue, who have, who have been to the sacrifice, who were, who were taken in at eight years old and circumcised, where are they? The ones who have the greater knowledge and greater access, who've had it all along, where are they? All we've got is this foreigner who has come to this place of faith to come and make sure he came back and thanked the Lord. And by the way, um, this isn't just a single occasion that he thanked the Lord and moved on. Uh, The indication uh, that we have is that he may have probably traveled with Christ from there on. That he was likely among the ones in the upper room were that close to the end of Christ's ministry. This was one um, who exemplified a maturity, even in his newfound faith, and yet he was a Samaritan, and we have to appreciate that to a degree. But we also have to be warned by it. You see. If you've grown up in church all your life, you'd be warned today. Don't think that because you've grown up and you've known and you've heard the Sunday school lessons and you've heard and you've read the Bible cover to cover that somehow you're insulated from this warning. It is you that the warning is given to. Watch out. Take heed to yourself. You're counting among the nine. And it's too easy for you to get caught up in glorifying yourself, get glorified in who baptized you or how many years you've been taught or you knew this and you know that. Um, Be warned. That kind of attitude is going to get you in trouble because you're not glorifying God and you're not going to show the thankfulness and the humility that we are called upon. But there is some hope here. (laughs) There is some joy here because no one's excluded from the kingdom of heaven. This kind of rich, mature faith can be produced, can be uh, directed by anyone. Essentially, what we have here is the one person that the Jews were probably the most biased against. They would rather deal with a Gentile, a full Gentile than a Samaritan. It was the height of their prejudice was against Samaritans. And Jesus Christ, not just here, but we know of the Samaritan woman at the well, and, and we see other contacts He's had with these in Samaria. Here's the ones that the Jews wouldn't even go to. They wouldn't even walk through their towns They would go around, way out of their way to avoid even stepping foot on Samaritan soil. That's what they thought of Samaritans. These nine were only thrown into this with that Samaritan apparently by necessity of the leprosy. We might look at this and say, here's one that's prejudiced against by those who are supposed to be the people of God. Jesus reaches out to them indiscriminately. All ten of you, start walking. And God's call to us is indiscriminate. It's not certain ones of you can be saved, but all men can be saved. He calls all men everywhere to repentance. Come to me. I don't care your background. I don't care how much sin you have in there. I don't care what kind of blood you got going through your veins or where you think it came from. I don't care your economic condition. I don't care your language. I don't care your, your, any of it. It's whether you're male or female. I don't care. All I know is you're all sinners and I want to save you. And, and so he gives that declaration, go. He didn't say, now which one of you got, are any of you Samaritans over there? <laughs> He said, if you all want to be saved, you can be saved. Isn't that wonderful? You don't have to be a particular kind of person to be saved. But the wonderful thing is, no matter what kind of person you are, once the work of God starts in your life, you have access to the God of the universe. And you can come into mature faith that is not just declarative but obedient and glorifying to God with thanksgiving requires humility all the way each step of these requires humility requires humility to say Lord help me I deserve the worst and so your pride can keep you from that kind of faith your pride can keep you from obedient faith oh you know I got saved now I can live how I like I don't really need God to interfere in my life too much your pride can keep you from mature faith. I'm not willing to glorify God for what He's doing in your life and trying to take the glory on yourself. Very powerful singular message here that we exemplify this faith and that the root attitude in the Christian life that is going to bring this forward isn't whether you were raised in church, isn't whether you're a Jew or Gentile, isn't whether you're male or female, it's are you thankful? Are you thankful? What God is doing, has done, and will do in your life. It will transform your faith. You'll have no problems at the end of this day coming to God and saying, I've tried to do everything you commanded and I'm just an unprofitable servant and I've just done the minimum. What well, is my duty to do? I don't need any praise. Just give glory to you and I worship you at your feet because that's where I belong. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this testimony, for that final statement of yours that his faith made him well. Or we pray that it might be well with us. And we know that that requires us to place our faith in You and You alone. Not just to say so, but to do so. And as we do so, to maintain a spirit of humility and hearts full of thanksgiving. Help us in this, Lord. You know the hearts of men and how weak they are. How prone they are to glorify themselves, to glorify the circumstance around them. Lord, help us to glorify you, your kindness, your judgment, and your righteousness. Lord, our prayers that you might have the liberty to move amongst the thankful people who count it life's greatest privilege. To be your slave. And cannot cease to give praise to your name. For the wonderful work you've done in our lives. In Christ Jesus' name. Amen.